Marketers need to understand the company's real values, what's actually lived every day throughout the business, and define kind of who the intended audience is. I know that's like marketing 101, but what I mean by that is if you're Nike, you knew exactly who your Colin Kaepernick partnership was for. The Emmy award-winning campaign, what did they say? Believe in something, right? Even if it means sacrificing everything. We heard a lot about the pushback that that campaign got, but that campaign was intended for a specific mindset, a specific consumer. Every company has to define who they're for and who they're not for. You're listening to Retail Remix, your inside access to candid conversations with the people shaping retail's future. Here's your host, Alicia Esposito. Hello, everyone, and welcome to a very special episode of Retail Remix. I say special because I have a good friend of mine on the show and an all-around marketing whiz. She started out doing PR. That's how we met. And now she does a lot of marketing work, content strategy work, and is even an author and producer of a documentary, which we'll be getting into. Katie Martell, welcome to the show. Great to have you. Hello, Alicia. Thank you so much for having me. And I I love that intro because I don't really know what it is that I do anymore. I just know that I've been marketing to marketers for 12 years and that I have enough of a platform now where I just want to use it to create awareness of things, whether it's the tech that I'm paid to create awareness for or issues that matter to me. So yeah, we've known each other a long time and it's been fun to watch. I think both of us navigate this very strange world of marketing, MarTech and all the media around it. So thank you again for bringing me on. Yeah, absolutely. It's been interesting to see everyone slowly start with their own particular niches or areas of expertise, whether it's, you know, being a writer, someone in PR, and then everyone just starts to do a little bit of everything. And I feel like marketers in all industries are very much in the same boat. But let's get down to the brass tacks, the topic at hand, and a lot of the work that you're doing today. So you still do a lot of traditional marketing work, messaging, content, podcasts like this, but you're also a described marketing truth teller. You're putting a lot of your focus on the role of social issues, purpose-driven marketing in both B2B and B2C. So very interesting journey. Do you want to share a little bit about how you got here and why? I know you kind of talked about how you wanted to tap into issues that matter to you and the world around you, but why do you think this truth-telling is so important today? Yeah, I got this nickname from a colleague like five years ago. He said, Katie is an unapologetic marketing truth teller. So shout out to Andrew for that moniker. And it was because I had started to write about marketing through the lens of kind of my personal life, right? I'm a woman, I'm a member of the gay community. And I started to look at the marketing that I had been learning and studying and and marketing to other marketers through this much more social justice lens. And I started to write about the rise of femvertising, advertising featuring women's rights and pride rainbow washing, you know, when everyone flips their logo for June. And since then, this has been about a five-year project. um, It's evolved into what we just lived through 2020, which was like this year of woke marketing, where every brand, it seems like, from deodorant to HR tech, had something to say about social justice issues that historically they've never weighed in on. And so as somebody who's kind of invested as members of these marginalized communities in part, and as a marketer, I thought, what a great opportunity to kind of just unpack 
figure out some of the risks, some of the opportunities, and hopefully provide guidance as we're all CMOs down to marketing specialists alike, trying to navigate this weird new normal, this weird new time. So it's evolved into a film and a book project, a speaking platform, training for organizations. It's, it's just blossomed into this thing by the sheer need, the sheer fact that people don't quite know where to step and where the landmines are and where the opportunity is. So Welcome to the, the new chapter for me, which is very much focused on raising awareness and hopefully education about woke-washed marketing. That's the name of the film and book is woke-washed, which is an industry term that is just describing this weird new collision between social movements and marketing and all the awkwardness and the weirdness and the greatness within that. Yeah. And the discomfort. And we're going to get into some of those issues that I'm sure a lot of people are feeling. They're trying to navigate pressures internally as well as from their consumer. So let's talk about the consumer side first, because I know I've been studying retail and marketing for 10 years now. Over the past few years, we've seen that acceleration of especially younger consumers wanting to do business with brands that align with them in terms of social issues, political issues, but down to the nitty gritty core of who they are and what they believe in. They're looking for that value alignment. But to your point, over the past year, there's been this interesting shift. And I I don't want to say seismic shift because I do think it started a little bit before 2020 where people were looking a little more closely. It wasn't just a run of applause for the girl power ad. People were like, oh, but is that good? Is that productive? Is that meaningful? And people are trying to go a few layers deeper into not just the intent, but the impact or the action that that follows through with that. So I'd love to get your take. Is this a product of 2020 in and of itself? I mean, you you study this very closely. Or where did that tipping point start, I guess you could say? The tipping point started in 2016. And you can imagine what was happening politically in 2016. This is a very non-scientific perspective. But as I started to write about this, I started to collect examples. And I started to talk to other marketers. And, and just purely the quantity of ads and campaigns and responses, whether it's a CEO statement or a tweet, started to really come out in force after the 2016 election. And I think that was due in part to the backlash, right, that the most of the country felt with the results of the election. And it was this, like, fervor. Right. I remember the energy of that time feeling like this. There was this need for support for these social movements, for raise awareness of these issues that was not reflected in the results of the election. That was felt by consumers and brands alike. And so 2016, 2017, I was thinking through the same timeline. Super Bowl 2017 had the most examples of like girl power ads and racial justice ads. And and then it just continued through 2020, where we saw this incredible social reckoning, right? And now in 2021, I feel like we're like looking back, kind of like hungover, like, oh my God, what did we just live through? And what we're now in is this new normal, right? Of marketing and branding and PR and all the things that a uh, marketing team does that intersects with social movements. And I think consumers, to your point, you're so right. Consumers are paying attention now to whether brands that they buy from and they work for kind of share those same values through actions. We also live in a time, right, where cancel culture is real. 
right? Age of accountability, sunlight. There's more consumers than ever with a voice, with an ability to call out brands in a way that they couldn't five, 10 years ago. I would say 10, 20 years ago now. Sometimes I forget what year it is. Does that ever happen to you? I do too. Yeah. You're like, what day is it? 2021? (laughs) Yeah. Same. I'm always 16, but it's, but it's true. And so what we're dealing with is more companies than ever wading into these conversations and more consumers than ever acting as kind of watchdogs and even internal company employees acting as employee activists. So right now it's a crazy time. Everyone is trying to figure out what that right path is. And the rules are being defined very much in real time. But it is aligning to your point with trends. So more consumers than ever are belief driven buyers. Edelman has done some great studies on this. They found that 64% of customers think of themselves as belief driven buyers. They're going to choose, switch, boycott, or advocate for a brand based on its stance on societal issues. They also are wisening up to BS. They call things like woke washing a marketing ploy. To a lot of consumers, the majority, 56% in this study from 2019, found that brands are just too often using marketing societal issues as a marketing ploy, and they call it trust washing. Like they get that this is just an attempt to earn trust and gain awareness and, and kind of align themselves to movements for the company's benefit. All this said, I don't, and I'm not seeing kind of trends or data that show that values are the number one reason people buy stuff. Right. I think that the rise of Amazon is proof of that. I think that Amazon remains the most trusted brand in this country, more so than I think it was something like it was a study that showed what the most trusted brands were. And Amazon continually rose up to number one over some really well-established brands you would think of. And the reason is Amazon delivers on its promise. It gives you the items you want, whatever you want, when you want it, period. Right. So there's like Still, this foundation of brands have to live up to the promises, first and foremost, in customer experience and product. But all of that is reinforced by values, value alignment around social issues and and human rights. Yeah. So let's dig into woke washing, what that is, what it means, and what the impacts are. Because again, you've studied a variety of different brands, their approaches to leveraging or zeroing in on social issues in their marketing strategy and in their campaigns. What exactly is woke washing and how does this kind of parlay into the main things that you're seeing brands getting wrong today? Because I think it's important to talk about what's broken before we can talk about how to fix it. Oh, you're so right. I mean, we as marketers know that the only way to create change, right, is to kind of poke at that awkward truth. I call them exceptional truths. They're the things that like everyone's thinking, but no one's saying. When you can articulate it, when you can name it, when you can name the enemy, right, it galvanizes people towards addressing it and finding a solution. So I agree. It is important to call out brands. Shame, however, does not create action, right? We cannot shame people into right into fixing their behavior. What we can do is show people that there's a better way forward and that the groundswell of support and momentum is moving in this direction. And that's what we're really seeing. If you're not familiar with the term woke, it just means that you're tapped into like social issues, right? You're kind of on the cutting edge of being able to articulate what's going on with marginalized communities like women and LGBTQ individuals and people of color, right? If you're woke, you're kind of tapped into what the reality is of being marginalized in the modern world. Woke washing is kind of like whitewashing or greenwashing you might have heard, right? It's kind of like when you're trying to cover up your brand, your company with something else. It's kind of a way of obscuring the truth, right? And that's why the truth is so important here. In the term, the way that I'm using it for the film, it's woke washing meant to describe this weird period of time, right? Where brands co-opt 
social movements. Sustainability is part of that, not just LGBTQ equality or racial justice, but co-opting it in their marketing without living up to those ideals or demonstrating real allyship through actions, right? That's the difference. It's, there's meaningful allyship from brands and individuals. And then there's this performative allyship. The other names for it are like pandering, virtue signaling, right? There's a million ways to describe what's going on, but it's this idea that you're kind of a peacock. You're like trying to show the world what you are and, and show off without doing the real hard work behind the scenes. And I think that we see it a lot. Last year during the Black Lives Matter protests, we saw a, a rash of black squares, companies that made big donations, for example, to the NAACP and stood in solidarity with the protests, but didn't direct that same investment of money and time to their own actions, paying their own workers, adequate pay, for example, to lift people from working poverty or closing the pay gap for black women, which, by the way, is like in the 60 cents range, not the 80 cents that we talk about when we talk about the pay gap. That's white women. So we saw a lot of brands kind of forgetting the work. We see it with uh, femvertising all the time. So when recording this, it's March 4th. So March 6th, or 8th, sorry, Monday, International Women's Day, we're going to see a ton of feminist campaigns. And I'm interested to see how many companies who are launching these campaigns also look at their internal actions and treatment towards women, again, closing the pay gap, or addressing issues like one in four women returning to work within two weeks of giving birth, right? There's these really harsh realities of working at some of the firms that claim to be feminist, in their ads. We see it also with rainbow merchandise during June being manufactured in places that it's illegal to be gay in, or companies that say that they stand with the LGBTQ community in the month of June only, right? Failing to leverage their platform as a brand to help with the ongoing fight for legal protection. There's a big Equality Act right now happening, moving through our government that brands could weigh in on. So I'm, I'm really just fascinated to see what, based on the calendar months of the year, right, brands do versus what they do all year and with meaningful action. Yeah, no, so many good points. And I have to ask, I mean, just based on your analysis, if you were to kind of break down which companies are creating meaningful change, you know, they're actually throwing their hat in the ring, doing something rather than just doing the campaign versus this is just a mark on the calendar. It's part of our campaign cycle. And then you do the black square and then you move on to the next thing and hope your consumer does too. I mean, what's the percentage breakdown, do you think, if you had to guess right now? I wish I knew. I really wish I did. I wish I could just track every one of these campaigns. And I do make an effort to do so. And I was initially outraged by the gaps that I saw, the kind of Porter Novelli, who are in my documentary, they're a purpose-driven communications firm. They call it the say-do gap, right? Gap between what you do and what you say. I was outraged by the poor examples, right? And there, there have been quite a few. I'm also, as I research, so encouraged because I'm finding so many brands that have done that work, have figured out that like these movements need the support of the business community, right? And they've done the work to be like, well, how do we leverage our platform and our privilege and our resources and our time and our energy and all the things that a business brings to the world? How do we leverage that for meaningful allyship? And so it's, I don't have a percentage for you. I'm going to completely dodge the question, but I will say it's getting better because of the fact that we're talking about this, the fact that you've had me on here, right? I'm seeing the result. I hear from marketers all the time who have either heard me speak or read a newsletter or God knows how people find me on the internet. I'm all over it. But they say to me, you've helped me understand this in a different way. Like you've helped me name the things that we were all kind of feeling. And now we understand that there's a difference between allyship and being an adversary to these movements, that there's a difference to your point to impact versus intent 
that there's something that we can each do as individual allies and as brands to align ourselves with the movements in the way the movements are asking for, not in the way that benefits our brand. Completely avoided your question, but I'm bullish, optimistic, right? That the tide is turning towards a positive, (laughs) positive world. Yeah. And to your point, definitely don't want to call anyone out or say like X brand is doing an awful job or this one's doing good. I do think it is a collective learning process and experience for all companies and all individuals. So that leads me to my next question. You actually brought up a really great point around individual and collective action at the business level. We've actually seen some great content, some great conversations around ways to make an impact at a diversity inclusion level, at a sustainability level of being purpose-driven in general, different approaches. So for example, some say that this is something that needs to be driven and influenced from the top down. Others say, No, it's your employees, your people who are the boots on the ground. They have their ear to the ground. They're talking with consumers. You need a cycle of listening and applying learnings from your consumers. Do you have a perspective as far as like what the best approach is? Can meaningful change happen from either direction? Yes and yes, right? Change is one of those things as as marketers that we know well. Our job is to create change. And so do politicians and so do activists. So what we learn from activism is that on the ground grassroots campaigning can really create change from the bottom up. What we learn from politics and marketing and thought leadership and all that is that we can influence change from the top down. By that, I mean kind of like thought leaders and right down to where it kind of rubber meets the road. So change comes from all sides. I think that that's actually not a platitude, but actually an important note to say that it's not the job of the CEO or the job of the intern. It is all of our responsibilities because what we're talking about are societal issues. A business exists in the fabric of society, right? And a business also brings with it, some businesses are larger than some countries, right? The multinational corporations have immense power. What we're talking about are resources and leveraging those resources the way that any community does. But what we're talking about also is a for-profit institution. So I think in that lens, we have to be super clear that change only really does happen at firms that are meant to generate profit when there's profit associated to it. For that reason, I think marketers are sitting at this beautiful opportunity to both protect and guide the brands they work for towards like long-term loyalty, protecting from brand risk, as well as to recognize the opportunity ahead. I don't think it's the job of marketing to fix societal woes. We cannot give that responsibility to advertising, but I do think that marketers can redirect organizations who kind of want to just be performative or stay out of it or not get political, right? Marketing has an opportunity as the function in organization to say, look, we can create better engagement, long-term brand loyalty. We can stand for something in market. We can do all these things that mean we can align ourselves with social movements in more meaningful ways. But it requires marketing to be kind of a rabble rouser internally. That means HR practices, supply chain practices, to your point. It's it's an interesting time to be in marketing. But when marketers look at this like a marketing issue, that's when trouble arises, right? When it's just a PR move, it's just a PR move. And we can't think of it as anything more meaningful, right? Performative allyship is that kind of key word that we're looking out for. It's it's the watch out word, right? Don't be performative in your allyship. Things like empty promises, right? When you just kind of issue a statement that says condemn, stand with, right? If it's opportunistic, if the history of the brand doesn't align with the movement or you've got some really strong issues, 
Pepsi <laughs> that you need to address right before you jump into conversations and claim that your product can solve these incredibly important social issues. Marketing's job is to kind of prevent that from happening. And so I think marketing, right, is the best place to have this conversation and to really be that guide internally to protect the brand as well as the danger of this performative allyship. Well, and to your point, it could start with just one thing or one activity, and then it can turn into a bigger conversation and dialogue around, okay, we said we were going to do X for this campaign, or we did X and here was a response. This is a bigger thing that we need to discuss at a broader organizational level. So it is possible that one campaign could be the jumpstart or the spark to much larger organizational change, which I find to be super exciting and a big opportunity for our marketing teams today. Yeah. Yeah. And I, and I think it's, there's some teams, like I interviewed Ben and Jerry's for the film, Ben and Jerry's, they're on one end of this like spectrum of allyship. Not every brand listening can be anywhere close to Ben and Jerry's. But as an example of one company doing it, Ben and Jerry's has an, an internal global head of activism. His name is Chris Miller, great guy, interviewed him for the film out in Vermont. And he really does operate as this independent part of the business. He's got the resources of the marketing team who he collaborates with as an ally in the business, but he is not part of the marketing team. His charter is to come in and move progressive issues forward, leveraging the resources of a brand as large as Ben & Jerry's, a global brand owned by Unilever. He has this great phrase as he looks towards this, this mindset. He says, it's better to be loved by some than to be inoffensive to everyone. And so they operate with that principle and they move these causes forward with all of the retail shop, the scoop shops that we see with signage, for example, dismantle white supremacy, right? We see billboards in the recent Super Bowl down in Florida, right? They had billboards with Colin Kaepernick and, and they made murals that kind of promoted the partnership between Ben and Jerry's and Colin Kaepernick's Know Your Rights organization, nonprofit. And you can see all these moves. They're leveraging marketing's dollars and resources for these progressive issues. They also do a lot of lobbying, a lot of actual on the ground work, but it's returning to the business in terms of marketing. They're measuring it in terms of marketing impact, reach, engagement, their statements about white supremacy. Chris mentioned they measured it in terms of the millions of people that came to the site, right? Traditional marketing tactics, but not from the marketing department. I think this is an ongoing trend. I think we'll see more of this moving forward. Unilever itself, the parent company is moving towards purpose at the foundation of its marketing plans. But we see this all over the place. It, it doesn't have to be a full-time activism department, right? All it takes, I think, is an understanding of what the movements are calling for. That this is not a marketing opportunity or a marketing campaign or a calendar of the month. These are real social movements that are affecting real lives, like mine, like yours, like every person that's marginalized and unheard. That's the conversation, what it needs to be centered in before it's considered a marketing thing or the PR agency pitches it to you like a this month's right. campaign. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So so to that end, like you said earlier, we're getting into this peak time, I guess you could say. Peak of, wokeness. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, of course, there are these conversations happening internally. We talked big picture. How can the marketing team be a driver of change at a much broader level? But what can they do right now? You know, as these conversations are starting to happen internally, as plans are starting to be implemented, right? Like this is just part of the reality. It's a constant cycle of doing, executing, measuring, rinsing, repeating. Uh, um, so what can they do to, one, ensure 
everything stays on track from a tactical level, but two, they're holding themselves and frankly, the business accountable for what happens after the campaign or as they prep for the next one. Because like you said, far too many times I've seen pride campaigns, people are asking, okay, well, what are you doing to contribute to organizations with this unique product line that you're creating for Pride Month? And then it's like, cricket. (laughs) So, So what can be happening at the process or workflow level, I guess, to ensure success in this peak period and beyond, in I guess. this weird time that we're in. Well, you made a good point, I think, in the way that you asked that question. I think the idea of campaigns, very familiar to us as marketing, have a start date and end date. And usually there's like a middle point, right, where it's like, oh, there's an event, like Dreamforce, right? Oh, there's a launch happening. We have to align around that. Or there's a day of the month that we have to, right? There's this kind of calendar-based, campaign-based thinking. Marketing also should realize, marketing, the industry, that there are incredible decisions that can be made as a part of normal business workflows. This is what I think the social movements are calling for brands to do, is to just integrate more aware thinking, woke thinking, into the decisions we're making every day. Not like sprinkle on some social justice at the top once a year and call it allyship, but rather things like when the Parkland shooting happened, Right, The CEO of Dick's Sporting Goods made a huge decision to remove a certain product from their shelf, these semi-automatic weapons and bump stocks and all the things that made assault-style weapons available to the everyday consumer. That's a decision. It's a product merchandising decision, but it was one that was done with this kind of motivation. The CEO had spoken to a lot of the parents and the victims' parents. That motivation was enough for him to kind of give the green light to make these important decisions. You have the same kind of decisions being made when it comes to gender, when it comes to this dichotomy between things for boys and things for girls, right? Zara, for example, has a gender neutral line. We have Disney that removed gender labels from Halloween costumes. These are decisions that are made in the stores. Target, Toys R Us have done away with gender-based labeling, you know, in the stores. These are decisions that are made as part of the workflow. And I think they're important decisions that really filter down to that individual consumer. That's the moment of impact, not at the campaign level, but like the little girl who can look at a shelf of Halloween costumes and not be told This is what you can be. You can't be that, right? These are just normal decisions. I'd love to also highlight MasterCard. I'd love to talk about their true name initiative regarding transgender individuals, allowing them to change the name on the card and recognize that they can be called whatever name they want. That simple allowance to change your name on the credit card and to operate in the world with alignment to the gender identity that you choose, that's so powerful, so meaningful, and guess what? Did not require a million-dollar Super Bowl ad to me and create impact, right? These are everyday decisions. I'm really, it's amazing the kind of creativity when you take yourself out of the picture, when you say, how are the ways that we're doing business today excluding people that we don't intend to exclude? How do we, that's inclusivity, right? How do we include more people? Like Barbie, for example. Oh, Barbie's like a woke icon, girl. Have you been reading about Barbie lately? Yeah, they're really stepping up, yep. Well, and it's coming from the pressure of the consumer, right? So this is like in the last five years, they were like, we got to upgrade or we're not going to be relevant anymore. But you can buy a Barbie now with, what is it, like 175 different skin tones. You can buy a Barbie with, with disabilities, with multiple body types. That's a productizing, merchandising decision that I think is going to make real people, actual people that are looking at these dolls and going, oh, I look like this. That changes things. That's That's incredibly meaningful. But it isn't maybe as sexy as we generated a million impressions, right? Or we won the HRC award. These are questions, These are individual decisions that happen every day. That's where the big impact happens. Go Barbie. Yeah, right. 
Barbie. So you brought up a lot of the positive outcomes. And I think the looming cloud over it all, and you you touched on it briefly earlier, is the cancel culture that is permeating everywhere. Everyone loves to throw it around. It's a, a looming concern for brands. It prevents them from taking action, from taking a stance, but it also, I think, scares them into like not even doing anything, right? It's like, okay, well, on one hand, like if I do this and I get called out for not doing it right, I get called out and canceled. But if I don't do anything, I get canceled anyway. So like, what do I even do? Like, what's like, why? (laughs) Like, why am I even thinking about this? And why is it so stressful? And we just want to do the right thing, but how do I do that? So what's your take on cancel culture? to what do the brand executives, the marketers listening to right now need to worry about or think about? I think think about is a bit more productive than worry or be fearful of. (laughs) Um, Certainly. What can they consider as they go through this process? I I feel like we've left a little breadcrumbs throughout our conversation around intent and impact and, and holistic planning and strategy. But I mean, let's break down some of the issues surrounding cancel culture specifically. I love cancel culture. My God, what a term, right? It's been completely co-opted by people that are trying to avoid accountability. So I like those memes that go around that say cancel culture just means accountability culture. Whatever we call it, whatever it is, the fact is, right, there are more consumers than ever empowered to say whatever they want about your brand. And we all know that in the age of 2021, a brand is the most important thing a company has, right? Assets are now brand and people. That means companies are, yes, they are worried they should be, right? Brand and people. Those are two things that have to be continually, what's the word I want? Like massaged. Do you know what I mean? I think that we're in a new normal and there's no going back to a world where brands now no longer have anything to say on these issues. There was this like line. There was this like church and state. There was this line that was like, oh, that's too political. Like, we don't want to do that. I was speaking to somebody yesterday who was at a major financial institution, and he was telling me about the conversation he had internally. He was running DEI, and the firm had about 4,000 employees down in North Carolina. And North Carolina at the time had this really awful initiative, really discriminatory towards transgender individuals, HB2, House Bill 2. And at first, the company was like, we're not getting involved. Like, we don't speak up on stuff like this. And it was at the pressure of this internal employee who was like, we have to speak up for the employees, the people living and working in North Carolina, who we are now basically, by saying nothing, allowing their workplace experience to just be filled with discrimination. Just as they cannot come to work and be their true authentic selves, right? So companies are trying to kind of like navigate, should we or shouldn't we? But that time is increasingly over. We are in an age now where this is kind of the new normal. Marketing can't do nothing. Brands that stand for nothing, stand for nothing, appeal to no one, right? The only thing you find in the middle of the road is roadkill. It's like a, my favorite adage that I found wow. on the internet. One. Come on now. You gotta <laughs> I found take it on the stand. internet. I found it on the internet. No, I didn't say it. It's probably, meme. you know, probably an old white guy who was advertising 50 years ago. Who knows? But it's just this idea that you really, you don't have to wade in on every issue, right? But when it comes to what you can make have an impact in, you've got to say something. What that has, so I'm answering your question here, but marketers need to understand the company's real values, what's actually lived every day throughout the business, and define kind of who the intended audience is. And that's like marketing 101. But what I mean by that is if you're Nike, you knew exactly who your Colin Kaepernick partnership was for. The Emmy award-winning campaign, what did they say? Believe in something, right? Even if it means sacrificing everything. We heard a lot about the pushback that that campaign got, 
But that campaign was intended for a specific mindset, a specific consumer. Every company has to define who they're for and who they're not for, right? So the blowback isn't that big of a deal when your campaign is hitting the target audience and resonating with what they believe. I mean, I think it added like $26 billion to the firm's value, right? 18% stock boost, Emmy-winning, award-winning campaign. The one tweet, the couple tweets of people burning their Nikes did not have that same impact. So there's an outsized level that we're giving this kind of like, oh no, what if we get called out? When you get called out, it just means that you've got to do that work internally. Imperfect allies are better than non-allies at all. I would much rather have a firm try and fail, get called out, and then come back and do it better. L'Oreal Paris got called out in June. Did you hear about this with Monroe Bergdorf? Oh, yes, yes, yes. Mm -hmm. Right, where they were called out for, in 2017, this model that posted something that was like, white supremacy is bad. And L'Oreal at the time was like, oh, you can't do that. You can't say those words on social media. We're going to stop working with you as an influencer. 2020 happened and L'Oreal's out there going, speaking up is worth it with their ads. And some Monroe, of course, said, hello, you fired me three, four years ago for saying the same thing. So L'Oreal had to do some soul searching. There was some new leadership. So there was that kind of good PR messaging. But what happened was they actually made up for it. They said, look, we messed up. And they gave Monroe this, this opportunity to work with the business as a kind of like diversity member of their kind of leadership team in some capacities, a voice to help them correct it. So the point is, if you get called out, cool. That's what this is about. These are important social movements that really affect people's lives. I mean, like lived experiences. You're going to be called out because it matters. What really matters is how you respond to it, how you act, whether you take accountability for it, and the transparent and kind of measurable way that you then move forward. Do we have time for one more example of a company that did that yeah, well last absolutely. year? Absolutely. Let's do You're it. like, go for it, girl. Let's just, yeah. let's just keep going. Rent the Runway. Have I told you this example before? No, I don't think you have, but obviously oh, I, we know the brand, so. <laughs> we love a good Rent the Runway, right? And kudos, yeah. because this is one of those great female-founded firms that is just going gangbusters, right? If you don't know Rent the Runway, they're solidly in the fashion industry. They've kind of disrupted the world of designer buying, because you can rent designer gowns, right? Um, CEO Jennifer Hyman responded to the social reckoning of 2020 in regards to racial justice with one of those statements, like one of those, like a statement from our CEOs that all of us read and we're like, oh my God, really another one? But this one was refreshingly accountable. It was this beautiful note that said, look, she took a stand on this issue first and foremost. She didn't like pussyfoot around where she stands. She's like, look, we have to do better. The fashion industry and my and my company have to do better when it comes to racial inequality. It's in our financial best interest. It's in our moral best interest. We believe that this matters, right? So right there, she's aligning herself with the movement, which is kind of where most brands stopped, right? They did that and they were like, and here's a donation and hopefully you forget about this in four weeks when this right. blows over. <laughs> and she went to, and see you later. And by the way, 15% off with code Black Lives Matter. No, I'm kidding. But yeah. what she did was cool. She kind of took accountability for their own role, the company's own role in the systemic racism that affects this community. And by that, I mean, they kind of understood that they have an opportunity, like I keep saying, to apply their platform and their resources in a meaningful way. What that looked like for Rent the Runway was they signed up for the 15% pledge, which was started by Aurora James. It's a pledge for retailers to have 15% of shelf space represent and come from the Black community. At Rent the Runway, this, yes, includes Black designers, but they recognized that there was like a barrier to becoming a designer at the same level of, of all the fashion brands you can see on that platform. And so they were like, we need to work on that, that access point. And so they're contributing 
resources and access to black designers to help them reach that same level of success notoriety as all the other designer brands on the platform. That's meaningful and that's going to make long-term impact. The other thing they did was actually pledge that the models on screen, the talent behind the cameras, right? The, all these, these individuals involved in producing what the company does from a marketing and a media perspective is going to come from black individuals, literally behind the screen, behind the camera and on camera. That matters. They also pledged to you know, donate clothes to individuals, donate money. It was just full of like, here's what we believe. Here's our role in the problem. Here's what we're going to do to fix it. And here's the measurable 15% pledge that we're making. Not hard, yep. right? But definitely one that too. just... Yes, yeah. one that really took responsibility for their role in the solution, as well as acknowledging their responsibility and their role in the problem. That is huge. Every brand can do that. Yeah. And I think it's one thing to a very powerful thing to say, you know, listen, like we didn't even think about that. There was no intent behind not putting more thought into that, but we're acknowledging that just that oversight was the problem. You know what I mean? Like, I think that's a big, a big disconnect and something that people can and should acknowledge. Like, listen, like we weren't thinking about the diversity of the models that we were using. And the fact that we weren't thinking about that, it's not ingrained in us to think through a diverse lens. So we need to work on that. It's all in like how you approach it and how you peel back the layers, so to speak, on on what you're being called out on. So I, I think those are fantastic examples. We touched on even more examples throughout, which I was super happy about. But to tie up our big conversation, again, there's so much happening. It'll be fascinating to see what happens over the next year as far as how companies will be connecting the dots between, you know, these one-off campaigns to actual long-term strategic business-driven change. But let's close out with some key points or action items, because I'm sure some of the folks listening right now are like, oh my gosh, where do I even start? What? <laughs> yeah. How am I going to prioritize this? How am I going to communicate this to leadership even, since we have folks of all levels listening to this? So are there a few pointed takeaways or next steps that could be our like call to action? Yes. And I think it, you mentioned a really good point of, look, social protest, unrest, happens when people don't feel heard, right? That's what a protest is for. It's literally we have to stand in a big group on the street with signs because we don't feel like we have a voice, right? Like that's like just a simple fact. I think every brand, every marketing leader, whatever you are watching, listening to this, you have an opportunity now to listen. That's kind of what 2020 was asking for us to do as individuals was to listen to what the movements are calling for and have been calling for for now decades and generations. These are movements with a long history. And I think a lot of us were unprepared for the response we had to make as marketers because we weren't listening. That's okay. But now that you know better, do better is the refrain that I keep hearing. And so what that means is like step one, educate yourself on what the movements are calling for, what it's like to be part of these marginalized communities. I have a lot of conversations with marketers in private who say the same thing to me over and over and over again. And I'm sorry if I can swear, but they're like, I don't want to be an asshole. I just want to do the right thing. I just don't know what the right thing is. 
I can't tell you what the right thing is on a podcast in the next 30 seconds to end it. But what I can tell you is it's time to educate. It's time to learn. And it's not about like what the movements, there's no checklist, right? It's more about centering the conversation around the individuals affected by each of these communities. For example, one big issue right now is transgender rights, right? It's a huge conversation that requires a lot of education because many of us have thought about the world of gender in a dichotomy, boy and girl, that's it, pink and blue. What do you mean there's something in between? We get really defensive if we don't understand things, but I do think it's worth taking the time to understand the experience of trans individuals. Shout out to Stuart Getty. There's a great book called They, Them, and a 15-minute documentary that we can all watch. 15 minutes to understand the experiences of trans individuals. That kind of empathy is the first step in, in figuring out how then we can help them or how we have been excluding them from the work we do. Another big issue right now that I'm really focused on is accessibility. When we think of inclusiveness, right, we tend to ignore Ignore the fact that we often exclude individuals that are blind, individuals that are disabled from engaging with our content and our work and our brand. That's part of inclusivity. So how do you, do you know what it's like, for example, to go through a website if you are blind? I think that understanding that experience paves the way to how to make it better. Once you've done that work to kind of figure out what the heck these movements are all about anyway, what the history is about, welcome, by the way, to the club. You're going to be outraged and infuriated when you figure out the reality of being marginalized in this world. Take responsibility for your own role in perpetuating the problems and then, and then take real action with measurable results and then talk about it. See all that stuff that has to happen before we get to talk about it? It's the real work. Make it as important as we do pipeline and sales and hiring and employee engagement. Make it part of the fabric of how you make decisions in the business, and we will start to see that kind of systematic change that we've heard so much about. Love it. And like you said, (laughs) all of that work can't be underestimated. I think it's an ongoing process. It's not like ticking the box and saying, okay, now we're done and we got it all figured out. It is like an ever-changing process evolving thing. There are always new issues to pay attention to. There are always new consumer realities that as business leaders, as marketers that we need to respond to. So having a framework, I guess you could say, or like a process, a workflow can really help you stay accountable and and keep yourself in check. So Thank you, as always, Katie, so much for uh, taking the time out to chat with me today. I feel like we could go on and on and on, but sadly, we're at time. For days. For days. I and know. thank you for letting me talk your ear off about this. And I just want to remind everyone listening that there is power in being an imperfect ally. Start somewhere and just be willing to help. And I really thank you for having this conversation because I know this is one of those one of those times where I don't feel like I'm selling something, right? I feel like we're actually going to create some meaningful change and that feels great. So thank you, thank you, thank you for having me today and, and uh, everyone go check out my upcoming documentary, Woke Washed. Yep. And we're going to include links in the show notes for everyone to check out more details about Katie, the work she's doing, the documentary. And to Katie's point, we do want to continue the conversation. We want to make connections. So if you have any questions for her, Feel free to reach out to me directly, Alicia Esposito, on any social channels. Drop us a line on Twitter at our touch points or our LinkedIn. We are everywhere, not as everywhere as Katie is, but we are (laughs) everywhere. So if you have any questions or want to make a connection to Katie, please let us know. We think these conversations are so important. They're ongoing and we want to help facilitate them. As always, thank you all so much for checking out this conversation. If you haven't already, be in the loop, be in the know of all these great chats that we're having and subscribe to the pod. We are on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, everywhere you listen to podcasts. We love this community and we want to help drive positive change for it. So thank you for letting us have this conversation today. Thanks, everyone. 
Thanks for listening to this episode of Retail Remix. Be sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode. You can find us on your favorite podcast player. Until next time, keep mixing it up.